Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. He rides uh, the team at Pigeon. PGM has had a terrific run here in the fixed income market because they have been supple. They've been able to move, and it's given them a really, really interesting track record. Robert Tipp joins us uh, this morning. Robert Tipp, the basic idea I'm hearing is yields have hit the high, yield down, price up. How opportunistic is the first six months of 2022? Is it like the one or two other times we've seen since the great financial crisis where you can make total return in bonds? Well, I think that, that it is. Uh, I think it's a matter of what the relative benchmark is. We've, uh, we've passed the peak in, in long-term yields, and we're probably passing the peak in, in the front end uh, for yields now. And the, the return on the bond market is likely to exceed cash. We're likely to stay range-bound, kind of centered around where we are right now. And so I think traders are going to have to be very skilled at trading that range. Investors are going to have a much easier time. That's the lesson from the past tapers. That's the lesson uh, from the earlier analogs in history that are, are like this environment we're in right now. Rob, you made two calls there. At the long end, I've heard that call from you before. It was months ago, and it's turned out to be right going into year end. Do you think the highs on a 10-year are behind us right now? We're well south of where we were at the highs of the year in Q1, pushing 180, south of 140. You just said that maybe the peak at the front end might be behind us as well. Robert, why? Right. Yeah, I think so. For, for yields out to like your three-year point for now, I mean, once you get uh, 12 months down the road, if it turns out, you know, we're in that part of the probability spectrum of very strong economy, inflation staying high, and uh, Fed is really hiking rates three times next year, you're going to have a stair step higher in the front end. But for now, you're at that point where the Fed has really shot all their bullets. They announced taper in November within a month, basically an intermeeting move, right, to accelerate the taper, which is really uh, raises some questions. And uh, the market has, has moved on a one-year, one-year basis in OIS. So on average, where will the funds rate be uh, on average uh, over the year, you know, from point one years out to the point one year to two years out, uh, over 1%. That's a lot of rate hikes uh, to price in there. So now the market has to sit and wait. And I think it's unlikely they're going to push those bets further on the front end of the curve. Rob, I think this is such a fascinating moment because the likes of Deutsche Bank are asking a question over the weekend, last week into this week, how much work they need to do. Maybe they need to go even higher to tighten in an economy like this one. And you're saying they've shot all their bullets already. Um, they haven't even really done anything yet. Robert, can you square, reconcile what that debate sounds like from, from your perspective? Right. I mean, could be wrong on this, uh, but you know, from, from our perspective, the way this goes is by the time they have the information set to project the rate hikes that the Fed is projecting, to have the nerve to do the taper, look at where we were at the end of 2013, December, when they announced the taper to begin in January 2014, you're at 3%. By the time the Fed got around to hiking interest rates at the end of 2015, you're at 2.2% on the 10-year. You had a big rally. 
by the time just before they were ready to really, you know, get into the mode of hikes in 2016, you were in the low ones. So you're in a very dangerous period where the Fed is going to be in a wait time. Uh, they've accelerated the taper against a backdrop of going into flu season, of mm. a vax, of a uh, a new variant hitting, of oil prices falling, uh, and uh, you know so. Uh, you know, they, I mean, they did get one higher inflation number, but you also. So, got Rob, let me put you on a spot because I think report. this is so, yeah. so critical. Do you see the risk of a December 18 repeat? We're just talking about it this time around. They then have to back away from getting anywhere close to what people are talking about. I think that that Powell was on the right track of trying to keep the markets away from that. He was trying to focus on the here and now. Uh, and now they've lost that narrative a little bit. And we've seen two weeks of stocks falling and yields falling. So I'm assuming that there's been a learning curve and that he's going to see that and he's going to corral the committee and say, you know, if we want to have the flexibility to raise rates next year, if we think that's appropriate, we have to keep the markets on track that we are pro-growth with stable inflation and that we're not going to have an imbalanced reaction as opposed to last time, which was, you know, we have a long way to go to neutral, How which does- freaked the market out. How do you think the Fed is factoring in the fiscal equation? Obviously, we don't know what the final form of the Build Back Better plan will actually look like, if it'll even get passed early next year. But if it does, and there's an inflationary aspect to that, does that force the Fed's hand to some extent? Well, I think actually the fiscal is another factor that I would have put on the economically negative sides, right? It's not that we are having a little bit of stimulus kick in, presumably in the years ahead based on these programs that are passing now. The amount the government will be spending through these programs is so much less than what we had in years past that effectively growth has been inflated over the last couple of years by a couple of things. One is the fiscal and then a related item of that, which was a spending down of the high savings rate uh, that that generated. So I think it's great. Uh, I mean, I think in terms of growth, that should cushion the deceleration and growth that you'd otherwise get. Uh, but it's not a big step up on the fiscal side. It's a step down. Robert Tip, that was a clinic. Send our best to Greg and Mike, won't you? Robert Tip over at PGM. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Right now with special abilities, Sarah House is senior economist at Wells Fargo out of Tulane. And far more importantly, with active work in the measurement of what we do in America. Sarah House, in your books at Tulane and anything I've ever read, we've never had a China-like economy. Is a 9% or dare I say 10% nominal GDP healthy for America? Well, I don't think it's uh, as healthy as, as we would typically see. I mean, I think overall, these are good problems that the U.S. is, is having right now, where what's getting us to rec- practically a double-digit pace of, of nominal GDP is inflation. But that comes down, I think, a lot to this such strong demand that we've seen. And so I think some of the problems we say we are seeing right now, again, these, these are in many ways good problems, but I think ultimately unsustainable. And that's why we expect growth to moderate over the course of the upcoming year. Well, it's going to moderate through the upcoming year. Does the Fed, I mean, the Fed has to respond to 9% nominal GDP, right? 
Well, I think we've certainly seen that that shift where they've, in many ways, I think the October CPI was a wake-up call that this inflation environment is going to be somewhat longer lasting than they anticipated. And I think more importantly than just the duration, it's the magnitude. So we're looking at 7% CPI come Q1. And so I think we, we have seen the Fed realize that in order for inflation expectations to remain close to 2%, that they do have to, right. to make adjustments. And I think we'll, we'll see that very soon. I mean, John, what does corporate America do with this? If they've got 9%, they've got a company growing at 3 4 5% revenue growth is going to show 8 or 9% revenue growth. They have to adapt to that. They've done that this year. They've done pretty well, haven't they? Looking forward, let's put all this together. A seven-handle on CPI. You're looking for that in Q1, and we could come close to it a little bit later this week. You're looking for 6.9%. Deutsche Bank said the following, Sarah. I'd love your response to it. Surely more than 150 basis points of tightening are needed to slow down 11% nominal GDP growth to a more sustainable four. Sarah, this is the conversation we're having at the moment. Liftoff's one thing. How much tightening do we need to actually slow down this economy? That is a big question. I think it depends on when it starts. So the earlier the Fed starts, the less tightening we will ultimately have to see. But I think it's important to remember some of the momentum that's already in, in train. So we are getting further away from some of this fiscal support that really did sur- super, supercharge growth and inflation this past year. And so I think the tricky thing for the Fed is that they're most likely to be hiking into a slowing economy. And so I think there's still a lot of uncertainty about how high ultimately rates have to go. But I think what we've seen is is the Fed shifting towards um, painting that picture and, and kind of laying the groundwork for a faster taper. So they have the options to raise rates earlier. So ultimately, they might not have to raise them quite as as high. You talk about a slowing economy. Is there a risk that that will be exacerbated by the Omicron variant? Have you been able to model that out at all? So there's still so much unknown about Omicron that we we haven't modeled it out in terms of what that's going to do to our our upcoming GDP numbers, our our inflation numbers. I think when we uh, think of it in a directional sense, so it has the chance to dampen GDP, but intensify these supply chains. And so um, might revive some of those stagflationary debates that we had in, in the third quarter. But I think ultimately we've seen that with each successive wave, the impact to the economy has weakened. So businesses, have been incredibly successful at adapting to this environment. Consumers are growing more comfortable. We have more tools in order to still carry on with our lives, whether that's vaccinations, boosters, therapeutics, and just a great dose of COVID fatigue. And so I think unless we see some some really material um, and scary headlines coming out of of Omicron, right now we don't think that it's going to have a a, a massive impact or or really even a major dent in terms of the trajectory of the near-term U.S. economy. So you don't think the Omicron variant or even that mixed payrolls report we got on Friday would give the Fed some cover to punt until 2022. I think it gives them a little bit of cover if they want to take it, but I don't necessarily think they will. As I mentioned, we saw Fed officials really since that November meeting laying the groundwork for potentially an even faster taper as early as its meeting next week. And so I think when you look at what happened with the household survey, so the fact that we've seen the unemployment rate decline a full percentage point just over the over the past three months, we're staring you know pretty close to what the Fed considers full employment over the long term. And of course, we still have this inflation issue that is not going 
away anytime soon and is actually going to get worse before it gets better. I think that um, I think that while the Fed might be able to spin it, I think ultimately that that they'll most likely um, probably go ahead and, and accelerate the taper here soon. And now, folks, on radio and television, the dumb question of the morning. I'll take that one. Sarah, I'm looking at, you know, unemployment in Nebraska. You're Louisiana. And then I'm sorry, we're almost back to February of 2020. Is this American economy back to February of 2020? I think in in the aggregate, you could say that it's it's getting pretty close. Of course, there's tremendous variation. Where we've seen the growth is so different from where it would have been expected. So if you look at goods versus services, for for example, I think there's still a lot of questions when we look at the unemployment and the labor market as to what extent workers come back. We saw some thawing of that with the November jobs report. But there's still a lot of questions, particularly over older workers, those of retirement age. Are those retirements actually permanent? Or, or do they come back? But ultimately, I think we are barreling very quickly towards full employment. And that's also pushing the Fed towards this okay. more hawkish tone. It's not just inflation. It's that we are seeing the labor market rapidly tighten. And those two mandates are in less tension. John, Sarah, earlier uh, took some Barclays doom and gloom and Barclays pushed against the doom and gloom and said they're optimistic. Why are we so angst ridden? about a wonderfully buoyant American economy? Or is it normal to have OMG fears is we actually do pretty well? So I think it's it's natural to be perhaps um, more more conservative or at least um, more attuned to to the downside risks than perhaps the upside risk. And I think the inflation backdrop right now is is in many ways driving this. So even if, if yeah. you look at the fact that um, labor income is up ten and a half percent over over the year, that gets lost in this conversation of you know six percent yeah. plus in inflation. So no nobody really likes um, that right. the actual numbers changing is very hard for households and businesses to plan. And so I think that overrides this this underlying real yeah. growth story that we continue to see very strong. For you guys on radio, Sarah House has a perfect Christmas tree. John, is your <laughs> Christmas tree that nice? It doesn't have the star on top. If we're rating this Christmas tree, I have to say, extra marks for the star on top. It's very difficult to balance the star on the top yeah, of the well, tree. You've so. got, John, you've got AC Milan something up top, don't you? I have a little AC Milan mascot on top of the yeah, Christmas got, tree. Yes. That's thank right. You. Sarah, thank you. Sarah, thank you. Sarah House of Wells Fargo. That's Christmas. Let's not allow the Christmas tree, Tom, to distract us from a really interesting call from Sarah House. 6-9 on CPI this oh, Friday. huge. Come on, They're looking for a seven handle for the first quarter. We stop the show and we do that with William Lee. He is chief economist at Milken, but far more truly expert for the International Monetary Fund on the Pacific Rim and China. Bill Lee, what do we get wrong in the United States of our stereotypes of what we think of is, is Jonathan Spence's ancient China, the World War II China, or what do we get wrong about present-day China? We have this image of China as a monolithic behemoth that is moving in unison, and I think that's far from the case. Uh, right now, there's a huge amount of debate and dissension within China as to how to sustain growth, how to manage the property crisis they have there, at the same time, inspire the people to go out and spend 
in the light of their COVID shutdown policies. There's a lot of tension going on there. And the, uh, and, and even as we talk about our fiscal finances, theirs is coming to home to roost in spades. China has to finance their, their state and local governments with property sales. They need construction to sustain their GDP targets. At the same time, they've got to rein in debt. They've got to rein in a lot of credit growth. I have a really great respect for what foreign affairs has done on this, and particularly Daniel Kurtz-Phelan, of course, his expertise on George Marshall and China. Bill Lee, what I hear from experts is the monolithic view of President Xi is just flat out wrong. How powerful is the Beijing leader? He's become more powerful. I think that's the key message that's going to come out of the next People's Congress. Uh, Xi Jinping has done what no, uh, only two other leaders in China have done, Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping. He has become declared core leader. And in doing that, he's he's essentially gotten rid of all of his opposition. His his uh, anti-corruption policies have really gotten rid of any kind of, of, of challenge to his leadership. And his strategy is to consolidate by telling the people of China the Communist Party is going to deliver them safety, growth, and, and a better way of life by doing what Mao did, which is to say, turn domestic, turn inward to sources of growth and sources of, of, of export growth. And I think that he's going to try to tell the world, we will be a, a major power, handle us as such. But at WTO, he's also saying, we're also an emerging market. We want the advantages of being an emerging market. A lot of tensions there. Bill, just want to jump in with a stock move. Tesla down by three percentage points in the pre-market. Some headlines crossing. Katie, what do you see? Well, it's reportedly an SEC investigation that has been opened. This is according to a report from Reuters. You are seeing the subsequent move in Tesla shares. And we understand from Reuters that this probe is over claims on solar panel defects. So related to that Solar City uh, acquisition, I'm assuming. But we will continue to monitor Tesla, of course, John. They can't shake that off, can they? No. That's the Reuters report. The stock's down about three percent. We'll revisit that a little bit later in the morning on Bloomberg TV and radio. But I want to return to the leader of the Chinese Communist Party and try and understand from your perspective how much strength he actually has in China right now. Because on the outside looking in, we see these lifelong term limits for the Chinese leader. And then we try and figure out how much strength, how much control he actually has, Bill. How much control does he have? That tension between what he does at the federal level uh, and, and what power Beijing can exert and what the, the local authorities are able to implement are, are really two different things. The local authorities uh, are caught in this place where they need revenues, so they've got to sell a lot of property. Beijing wants to crack down on property companies uh, uh, expanding credit too much, and, and they need to cut down on property being the only source of savings for the people of China. So the, the the fiscal authorities have to expand the portfolio of assets available. The local state local authorities want the property market to be the core place that 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 they will get their financing from. Got lots of problems there. What I've always found amazing, Bill, is how much faith, confidence they seem to have in the Chinese policymaker when they make a move and do things like this, that China has control, that they can let some of the steam out and then they can support things again, tap the brakes, support things again, keep doing it over and over again without making a mistake. Bill, as you look at things, what is the risk of a policy mistake as they try and engineer the inevitable soft landing that is nearly always around the corner for China? When does it become something, something else, something to worry about, Bill? And what does that look like? 
Keep an eye on what they've just done. They did a triple R cut, right? They, they've, they've cut their reserve requirements, which in, in, in the most, most economists would say, that's expansionary. That's going to expand the growth of credit. At the same time, I just told you, they're trying to deleverage like crazy. Now, how are they going to pull that off is something that's, that's very important because they also have to accept that China's growth target is going to have to reduce down to 5% or even below 5%. Last, this next quarter, we're expecting uh, a GDP to come in at 4.9%. One of the things that the demographics and, and their shift toward higher value-added GDP activities is lots of manufacturing activities leaving China. That's the source of job growth for a lot right. of people. What are they going to do about that? Bill Lee, uh, Kaylee Lines mentioned two hours ago the modest uproar at Bridgewater of Connecticut over Mr. Dalio's comments on China. You're the kind of guy who sits in fancy offices in Hong Kong or in New York and advises Western commercial banking on the future of China and Hong Kong. What is your advice to Western bankers who need to set up shop in the shadow of HSBC? That's the toughest job in the world, Tom. Um, I think everyone knows uh, the strategy for Asia in general, and China in particular, is diversify. You cannot put all your eggs in that China basket, which everyone thought was such such a valuable basket because, my God, look at that population. If we could just get a small share of that population, we're going to be rich. I think one of the things that we're learning is China wants to help its own financial institutions. China wants to have national champions in terms of its banking and financial system. I think the advice to, to anyone, including my former colleagues at City, is start to diversify into sources of growth in the rest of Asia. And, and the rest of Asia, that has become less dependent upon China being the hub of the global supply chain. That's the, 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 that message, is, I think, has to get out. But unfortunately, all of the major global banks, from Jamie Dimon all the way down to whoever else wants to go into China is, China remains their central focus because of the size of that domestic market, can, which I think has become less available to them. Can Singapore and the Lee family, can they be opportunistic here? Oh, this is an absolute a phenomenal opportunity for Singapore and other financial hubs within Asia, which is to try to get that business to be where the entrepot, where the center of trade, commerce, and finance in ASEAN and the rest of Asia. I think the rest of Asia is coming together and, and in a way trying to de-emphasize the role of China, which China uh, is, is fighting against by becoming much more militaristic. Uh, and at the same time, they're letting the U.S. become a, a return to be a major power to try to coordinate the kind of trade and the global supply chain uh, restructuring that's going on. Bill, before you go, just wanted to turn to the Federal Reserve quickly, looking ahead to next week. What are the spillovers of that? Tighter monetary policy, a faster taper to the rest of the world. Tom often talks about a central banker to the world. Does it have the same effect, the same spillover as maybe we used to talk about? Well, it, it still has that spillover because we are a major cog in that global supply chain. But one thing that's underestimated is where the Biden appointments are going. I think one of the things that we have to watch out for is whether it said the Warren is going to appoint a, 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 a vice chair for supervision that will pervert the Federal Reserve's mandate into being green and, and, and one of reducing climate gap. That expanded mandate is something that I think uh, could could really destroy the capital allocation mechanism of the banking system and financial markets in general. And so that kind of distortion is something the U.S. economy may not be able to recover from. Bill Lee, thank you, sir, of Milken, with a strong opinion at the end there on the Federal Reserve, which we'll return to another day. Amrita Sen is with Energy Aspects. And to make it clear, she is hugely qualified to look at the global dynamics here 
and fold them down to her uh, microeconomics of University of Warwick of a few uh, years ago and a few other selected schools as well. We are thrilled to welcome you to Bloomberg in New York. Nice of you to be here. Here's what I saw in a 32-page J.P. Morgan PowerPoint. There is an assumption by the oil price bulls that it'll be different this time, that shale oil production will not come in as oil price goes higher. What do you say on that? Yeah, I think the price elasticity of shale production has <clears throat> changed, dramatically changed. I was this in, is not three or four years ago. No, it isn't. At least right now it isn't. I was in Texas last week, met with lots and lots of shale producers, and it's a very different mood. Uh, in fact, some companies who initially said they'll grow by 5%, they revised it to 0% and their share prices rose. <laughs> So why would they increase production? But also, they are facing huge constraints, labor, uh, equipment, steel shortages. So a lot of them are postponing are, rigs. Are they COVID constraints or is it something that clears with a better pandemic environment? The supply chain shortages will clear, but it'll probably still take a year. Right now, if you order a rig, you have to wait over a year. It used to be three months. Those things should ease over time. But is that true in uh, Saudi Arabia as well? Probably not as much, but then again, they don't need as many rigs, right? Shale just requires a lot more. But ultimately, shareholders are not rewarding them to raise production. That's the biggest fundamental difference this time around. Okay, that's on the shale side. When it comes to OPEC+, Plus, they surprised the market to a large extent last week when they decided to proceed with a production hike in January. Do you think that means that they will then have to slow or dial back in the following months? I think a lot will depend on how uh, demand is doing or the headlines you get because of the variant, the new variant and potential new flight restrictions. I think that is going to be absolutely critical in determining what OPEC plus do. Um, given the fact that the group has uh, the current meeting is still ongoing in theory, they didn't adjourn it. Very clever move, because essentially that means that, you know, there's enough uncertainty amongst traders that they're not going to go necessarily short this market. Um, I wouldn't rule out a pause or a cut if demand numbers get worse and if the headlines get worse uh, going into the fourth Jan meeting. What would you need to see that you would consider a headline getting worse? What is the real risk to demand from the Omicron variant? The WHO, uh, I believe, are holding a press conference this week. I think OPEC Plus <clears throat> will be listening to that very carefully. And I think for me, the critical thing is going to be how much more travel restrictions are we going to get in the next couple of weeks? A lot of countries are already tightening up travel restrictions. Um, and, you know, we are in co a constant conversation with OPEC uh, member countries and ministers about the impact on jet fuel demand and overall demand. I think they are going to be looking at that very, very closely because on their own numbers, um, Q1 bills are huge, close to 3 million barrels per day. So any drop-off in demand is just going to make that even worse. So demand elasticity is still there, still visible. And am I right, an unknown? Absolutely an unknown right now because, you know, we just had started traveling. I mean, this is my first trip to the U.S. since March of last year. Now more testing required and just more. It's a bit more onerous right now. Again, uh, mm -hmm. a lot of people were planning Christmas holidays. Let's see how much <clears throat> of that actually goes ahead. But right. I will say this. Look, there's a lot of pent up demand. I mean, in Texas, at least traffic was as insane in Asia. Asia didn't have a summer this year. They were still in forms of lockdown. There is a lot of pent up demand amongst consumers to go out there and travel. So what is your call on oil as we speak to all these experts, some of them in the bright lights of major firms and all that, just as a, to color it, is $80 the new $60? Do you see a trend up to the headline grabbing $100 a barrel? 
We've had 85 for 2022 for over three years now. It was based on the thesis of underinvestment and that shale is not going to react in the same right. way. So we're not changing that. It's structurally, <clears throat> yes, you're exactly right. 80 is the new 60. Now, to get us to $100, we need an event. You know, there's plenty out there. Sure, Libya, and, and Nigeria. others say that. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Uh, but I don't see us going to $100 in the near term. Ultimately, COVID is still around and that's capping demand. So we really need to look through to 2023 when the real supply shortages kick in. That's when you can see $100. And we learned overnight, Amrita, that Saudi Arabia is raising prices for buyers in Asia and the U.S. What kind of signal does that send to you? So the Saudi OSPs, the official selling prices, they are based on a formula. The formula was suggesting an increase in price. So it's not um, it's not a surprise to us. If any, Yeah, you could argue that the increase is a little bit more than the market was expecting. But again, going into this meeting, we were being told that, look, a pause could happen. <clears throat> even a cut could be on the table. And the, then politics got involved and, you know, we saw what OPEC Plus had to do. But Saudi Arabia, for one, is absolutely not keen to allow a surplus to build. Increasing prices to key consumers suggests that, look, they are going to keep a restraint <clears throat> on supplies. Amrita Sen, thank you so much for joining thank us. You. Don't be a stranger. Wonderful to have you here in uh, New York, and we hope to see you in London uh, soon, soon, soon. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.